Okay, we'll, we'll maybe get started now with the questions and answers. Uh, quite a selection. Thank you for uh, making the effort and putting them in, although I think that, that usually happens um, the last minute. Uh, everyone has lots of questions. So we'll go straight in. Uh, some of the things Julian has touched on in his sermons um, have got people thinking. And I suppose the first one I'll ask, uh, as an introvert, how do you practically make sure you give time to people? Huh. Well, <clears throat> by introvert and extrovert, um, I mean, just so everyone understands my understanding of those terms, it's not necessarily that you're very lively in groups, although extroverts typically are that and introverts are not. An introvert is someone who tends to find them, their energy being recharged by being on their own. And an extrovert is someone who tends to find their energy being charged by being with other people. So in order to give of my best to other people, I have to protect times when I'm on my own, and that's quite important for me. Um, and uh, my job enables me to do that. Most jobs don't, but... I have to spend a lot of time on my own praying and reading the Word and so on, and so that, that helps me in that. But I'm aware at other times when uh, I spend a lot of time with people like this weekend, that uh, when I go back, I'll need a bit of time on my own so that I can give myself in the best possible way when I meet, meet all my staff on Tuesdays, which is quite a draining day, and then we've got a session, a Christian education session in the evening at our home as well. So it's, for me, it's understanding my temperament, understanding how I work, and making sure I've got what I need to give to people in the way that I do. But then the second thing is not getting stuck in enjoying being on my own and making myself get out, making myself, well, Tuesday, go and see all my staff, um, go and do pastoral visits and so on, and taking the effort to go a little bit out of my comfort zone, even in a group like this where in some ways during the weekend I might prefer just to go off and be on my own. But you know, I wanted to meet people. I know that's the right thing to do, and so I've, I've hung around and tried to engage with people. Um, so it's to try to uh, uh, both work with my temperament but on the other hand, to try to overcome some of its more dysfunctional features so that I can, I suppose, be a better person. Okay, thank you. Uh, you talked about work there. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is struggling uh, or not enjoying their job? Struggling with their yeah. job or not enjoying their job? Yeah. We have to be real about the nature of work in a fallen world. And it's always going to be a bit of a struggle for almost everyone. Even the people who enjoy their work the most, there's going to be elements of struggle there. It's the nature of the curse. Uh, and however that works its way out, it works its way out in, in, in big time in the world of work. Um, maybe the nature of the physical world, maybe all sorts of things have changed. The fact that we're working uh, with sinners uh, as well and that we are sinners ourselves. You'll never get beyond that. I remember when I started work as a graduate management trainee and they had um, us all away from the different companies that were part of the big group. We were probably a group a bit like this, slightly smaller, but we were being addressed by some senior people. And a very senior personnel manager said, you have to realise something. You will probably enjoy, really enjoy, 20 to 30% of your work. You'll find perhaps another 20, 30, 40% of it okay. And there's going to be a strong element of it that will be really tough. That's not a Christian. But actually, those are not bad proportions. If you can get to that kind of proportion, you're doing pretty well. And there are lots of people who find it hard all the time. So we need to be real about that. Um, then the second bit, and that's biblical advice, because that's seeing things in a whole biblical narrative framework. 
The next thing to say is, I think, is, is just what Paul says consistently to the slaves, which is try to do it for the Lord. Working as to the Lord, not just your masters. Um, we could explore that at length and in depth. But if we do try to do our work for the Lord, I think that brings a certain transformation and relief to it. And as part of that, I think it's important to pray about our work. And I'm surprised how many Christians just, just don't seem to do that. They'll pray for people to be saved or pray about this or pray about that or perhaps pray about getting a new job, but they don't pray for the nitty-gritty of it. Pray for the meeting with the difficult manager. Pray for the meeting with the customer. Pray for the operation or the lesson. It to be long prayers, but praying specific prayers for God's help. Okay. Um, sort of connected to that um, a question on work, uh, Advice on how to encourage a Christian friend who has studied or worked hard but who has ended up due to economic or social circumstances in a job they feel is unstimulating or beneath them? Uh, Yeah, and I I very much feel for the person in that situation. And um, In terms of us looking at Proverbs, I think it, it just illustrates that, as I was saying, Proverbs are not universally true all the time. There is a tendency, if you work hard, you'll get on. But in a fallen world, it doesn't always work like that. And there was that proverb I quoted, from, I think, from chapter 13 about the poor man who works hard. And then, um, because he's poor, he can't get justice. And someone comes away and takes, takes the result, and he's just as poor as he was. And what you're describing is it's kind of almost a, a, a version of that, I think. Um, we, we live in this fallen world where economic situations and, and conditions go up and down. And we Christians will be the victims of those, just as Christians have been the victims of famine in different parts of the world. And that, that is a really tough one. And it's, it's a little bit what, like what one could say to people who uh, are single and really don't feel any call to be singleness, but no one comes along. Uh, you know, there are women in, in their 50s in my church who, who, who are in that situation, and some guys are a bit younger too. I think what one has to do is just to try to take a robust view of the goodness and the sovereignty of God and believe that in any situation, however difficult, however unfulfilled we are, there is some potential for giving glory to God. And in a difficult and unfulfilling situation, there is a special potential for experiencing more of Christ and thereby giving more glory to God. It's how I'd counsel people in difficult marriages. It's how I'd counsel people who... um, who who were widowed, how I counsel people who wanted to be married and not, and the same would apply in the workplace. That through what God can do in our characters, in our inner being, um, in our walk with him through that, there can be glory to him, even if it doesn't mean the kind of professional fulfilment that we were hoping for. Um, Some of these next few questions are very much related to Proverbs. Um, in your sermons you addressed, um, you know, talked about Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, where did the wisdom of Solomon go toward the end of his life? Didn't he become an adulterer? And this, this is one of the tricky things with uh, understanding this. There's a couple of questions relating to that. Do you want to give me all the questions? Or? Uh, how should we understand Proverbs teaching about sexual desire in light of the author Solomon, who had many wives? Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a common uh, thought people might have been having. Yeah. Solomon is just the biggest mystery, isn't he? I, mean, I don't think I completely understand. I, maybe the, the life of Solomon is just there to illustrate to us how much we need Christ. 
And, and maybe that's the way to see Solomon in terms of the big narrative of Scripture. If someone that wise can get in such a mess, we, we just need someone bigger and better than the, the best human being. In terms of the in, um, inner <coughs> psychological and moral and spiritual dynamic, I mean, who knows? Although in the end, it doesn't feel all that complicated, does it? I mean, he just, he just feels like he had a zipper problem. You know? And he, you know, for all his wisdom, in the end, he, he you know, he's, that, that was what did for him. And, and maybe that illustrates something, too, that people can be ever so smart, but in the end, there can be just a physical urge that overcomes that, and that can apply to any of us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if, you, if you want... Uh, after we've asked a question and maybe you, you would like more, feel free to stick your hand up and you can ask a follow-on question if you'd like to do that. Um, I suppose still on the issue of um, sexual relationships, uh, how can someone who has had a sexual past deal with that sin so that it does not affect future relationships? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, if I could change one thing about any of the talks, it would be including a little more in the one about sexuality yesterday morning, because I quoted from that girl, Kate, 20, age 28, about her sexual past and how it affected her relationship with her husband. And what I was going to do, as I often do, was to have the kind of more negative part of the story at one point, and then the end of the story at another point, and I forgot to do that, and that was a mistake, because um, she went on to describe how she and her husband, with some skilled help, had been working through these issues, and uh, how... Um, how there'd been very real progress there in terms of the relationship as a whole and in terms of their, the sexual side of the relationship. And so the story, that anecdote is intended to uh, end on a hopeful note, and that's so important because as Christians we're not into law, we're into gospel, and the gospel's about hope, and the gospel's about transformation. You know, our, our, we're all sexually broken people one way or the other. I mean, I certainly am, and we all are, one way or the other. Um, whether that in involves um, actual physical premarital sex or just things happening in our minds or whatever. But in the gospel, there is freedom, there is wholeness, the guilt is dealt with. Uh, I remember one of my teachers even talking about the, the kind of moral restoration of virginity, which is a very bold kind of thing to say. And also in one sense that's not true, but in God's sight it is actually true because the guilt is taken away. Um, and that's the starting point, certainly. Um, then I think it needs to be explored within if, if, if someone with a sexual past is in, is in a relationship um, just trying to work out how it affects that relationship talking that through maybe getting some seek, seeking some skilled help um, reinforcing areas of um, forgiveness sometimes we need to talk to a third party and heard them pray for us and had a sense of the release that comes um, it's not like the Roman Catholic confessional but there can be something very powerful when there's a sin on our conscience and somehow the guilt just stays and stays and stays. Uh, and then we go and talk to someone else and, and confess it to them. And they, they pray with us and pray for our assurance. And that can be God's way of transmitting through another person that our guilt is dealt with. And certainly that can be very powerful, I think. Um, but I, what I want to say is that, um, that though, though a sexual past is damaging, in Christ its effects can be mitigated, and in Christ there is hope for the future. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, still on relationships, uh, what advice, practical advice, 
would you give for dealing with loneliness in the context of wanting a marriage partner and having been rejected by Christians uh, and then being tempted by non-Christian relationships which lead to ruin? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a big temptation. I can think of friends of ours who went off and married non-Christians and all, all people who weren't all that committed and, and are not doing so well spiritually now. I think we all know that, but the desire for a lifelong companion can overcome that. We just have to hold fast on this principle that it will not be good for us. It won't be good for us if we're guys. It's, it's more, I think, more dangerous. I'm going to be, it's a little bit imbalanced for me. A little, I think it's more dangerous for women because the guy is the leader in the relationship. And if you're being led by a non-Christian, where's he going to lead you? He's not going to lead you towards Jesus. It's just going to be hard work. There's a woman in our church who um, married a non-Christian in her 20s, um, having become a Christian, and she knew she was doing the wrong thing, and she did it. But she, she repented of it. She couldn't get unmarried. That would have been right. She went on being married, and in fact, they had quite a, a good marriage, but there were deficiencies in it because of that. Anyway, I mean, she's, she, she worked for the church for a while. She's now in her 70s. But when, when any of the students is tempted to go out for an un, with a non-Christian, we, we arrange a little tete-a-tete over coffee. <laughs> And uh, that, that generally helps. Because she can speak from the experience of it. And even from the experience of having quite a decent marriage with a non-Christian, she can still speak from it. So what do you do? If you go back to Genesis, it says that uh, it's not good for a man to be alone. And then there is the creation of the woman. And we tend to think that means that we <coughs> are made for, uh, we're like a kind of, I don't know, an orange that's been cut in half in a kind of way that means you can only be put in half with another orange. Until you find the other half of your orange, you're going to be totally alone. I think that's a a very, very mistaken way of understanding that. I think it's mistaken in terms of thinking there's only one other half for my orange, if you like. I mean, Debbie and I are both both very honest about this. We have conversations about this. We both recognise we could have married other people. Um, And we could have married other people. It might have been easier for us because there's a certain difference between us and other people. You know, there might have been less difference or whatever. We're quite secure about talking about that and very committed to each other. So I think it's a big mistake to think that if you haven't got the other half of your particular orange, then, you know, life just doesn't work or or can't work. But more than that, um, I think that not being good for the man to be alone, yes, for many people that... Uh, the primary way that that is satisfied is in um, a lifelong relationship, in, in marriage with, with a husband or a wife. But it's not just in that, even for married people. It's about the creation of human community, because the man and the woman were to go out and uh, procreate. They were to have children. They were to create communities. The Old Testament, the way it explores what it means not to be alone, is very much about the creation of, of communities, and not just nuclear families, but clans and societies and so on. And so for each of us, the the answer to loneliness is not just one other person. It's not just one other person if you're married either. It took us a little time to cotton on to this, but we realized after a little bit in our our marriage, we were not the answer to all all, all each other's social and relational needs. It was far too high a burden for either of us to bear for the other one. And so... From then on, we've tended to be encouraging and saying, yeah, you, you need to go out and be with your friend. You need to go out and ring your friend. You need to go out and spend some time there because we just know we can't meet each other's relational needs entirely. So to come back to the question about singleness, I, I do think that, um, that, yes, loneliness is an issue and we need to work at meet, make, meeting uh, our relational needs 
but just not in a romantic and sexual relationship. And that is going to be God's provision for us. But there is one other thing, and I, I, I do think that the, the, our, our great need for loneliness is overcome also in our relationship with Christ. And for all of us, when there is a space in our lives between what we would like and what we have, whether that's materially or in health or in relationships, that sense of gap, that sense of space is an opportunity for us to have more of Christ. It's not just for the person who's single and never been married. This applies to the person who's been widowed. And I, I've talked with a number of widows in our church just in recent years and their loneliness, but also their sense that there is a chance of just being in a house where there was a husband before. Now there's a chance to experience and draw on and appreciate the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. It applies in marriage as well. You can get lonely in a marriage. There can be a gap in a marriage. What do you do? We've had times when each of us has been quite unwell, not been there, not been able to be there for the other person in the same way. We both suffer from mental illnesses of different kinds. And when that happens in particular, the other person isn't the relational companion that you want. There's a space there. What do you do? And it's not just filled by going out and meeting other flesh and blood people, though we both do that. It's a space to experience more of Christ himself. And I, I just offer that. Um, I'll maybe just ask this question next. Uh, as it, you, you mentioned there about um, health issues or mental health. Mm. Um, anxiety, and there's a question here. As someone who has suffered from depression and anxiety, uh, what is your opinion on Christians who take antidepressants, particularly long-term or indefinitely? And then the follow-on, how can a Christian who is suffering from uh, or has suffered depression witness to those who do not know Christ? I think antidepressants can be God's gift to us. I don't have a problem with doctors prescribing antidepressants. I find one kind didn't help me much, another kind did help me for a bit. That got me in a place where I could work out some of the things that were going wrong in my thinking and feeling, and that was quite helpful. I think they can be over-prescribed. I think there are issues in our access to primary health care through GPs. GPs don't have long enough. They can be forced into quite quick diagnoses and prescriptions. Um, I think at some point most people need a talking treatment if they've got a serious depression um, or anxiety, you know, someone to sit opposite them or a course or something to help them through rather than just pills. But I, I, I think pills can be really helpful. Um, there are questions about their efficacy long term, but that, that's more kind of technical evidence-based stuff that I'm not an expert on. But there are questions there and questions as to whether um, uh, uh, their, their usefulness continues over time and whether a talking treatment wouldn't be more help. For some people, there are certain kinds of mental illness condition where I think medication is absolutely essential to uh, everyday living in any kind of uh, way. Things like bipolar, um, uh, schizophrenia, other things we could mention. Uh, you know, really uh, difficult clinical conditions for which antidepressants, are, uh, sorry, um, uh, medication, uh, psychiatric medication in a more general sense, complete gold standard. It must have been very difficult before that. Um, so I, there's a certain caution there, but I you know, would see them as part of God's provision for us in our day and in our kind of technological time. What, the second yeah. thing was about witness. How can someone who has, is suffering or has suffered this witness to those who do not know Christ? Okay. Well, it's a hindrance or that okay. it's, uh, 
you know, an issue that is a barrier from doing that? I think we witness well to non-Christians when we're real and we don't pretend. And just to be honest about it isn't letting the side down. I mean, most non-Christians see it as, um, uh, as an illness, not a moral failing anyway. At least they do in, in our culture. I don't know whether it's slightly different in, in your culture over here, but it's increasingly the way society sees it. And to be real about weakness is actually quite a virtue in our culture. It wasn't always the case, but it is now. So I don't think we're letting the side down. And to be, to be honest about it, and to show by the way we're dealing with it, um, working it through, by the way it affects our character, our, our levels of compassion for other people, I think we can, it's a way of being a great witness. Yeah. It's a great opportunity. Uh, this question says, I know I am saved, but my heart and life feel completely disconnected from God. Nothing seems to help me. Even listening to God's word doesn't seem to impact or change my heart. Have you any advice? Well, and sometimes I like to be able to sit down with the person for an hour or two and, uh, and ask some questions. Um, Some of us are quite hard on ourselves and quite perfectionistic and quite all or nothing in our thinking. And if we haven't got a very high level of spiritual engagement and experience all the time, then we think we haven't got anything. I think that's, that's unhelpful. I think the experience of joy unspeakable and full of glory is, for most of us in this life is one that comes and goes rather than being a constant, though it can improve over time. I'd also be wanting to ask questions of a quite different kind, like, um, is there some pattern of unconfessed sin in your life that just needs dealing with? Um, (laughs) If I was Don Carson, I'd say, when did you start sleeping with your boyfriend? (laughs) But I'm not, so I won't. (laughs) You get the point. Is is there just something there which is preventing you enjoying Christ of a moral um, kind? It doesn't have to be, but... Maybe asking questions about whether there's a correct understanding of the work of Christ, the um, the external righteousness of Christ, which covers us. That's the key thing. Luther calls it God um, God's alien righteousness. He didn't mean it was something out of Doctor Who. He meant it was something that it wasn't in us but round us, and we can quite easily slip into a kind of quasi Catholic view that righteousness is infused that it. It's something that God puts inside of us that we can kind of look inside and see and that is what saves us. It's not what saves us. What saves us is the external righteousness of Christ that is outside us. So we look out to it. We see it outside of ourselves. It's another way of saying we look to Christ. Whether someone has understood that properly and that in Luther's great phrase, we are simultaneously still sinners but justified and to get get that right. Um, and then it's possible that um, if there's a sense of emotional disconnect, there may be some emotional issues, and psychological issues, maybe from the past and damage from different areas that just make it hard for us to engage with God. And I'd be sort of asking questions that would open that up a bit and seeing where we went with that and seeing if someone needed prayer or better understanding, uh, a willingness to um, grasp hold of God and his goodness for what happened even though it was ghastly maybe even some more skilled help with that. But what I would say to the person is, I, I can't do all that remotely in a big group. Um, 
go into your pastor or uh, whoever you trust as a wise older person in your church uh, and talk it through with them. Uh, in your last seminar, you said about the need to be reflective of ourselves. I completely avoid this. Any advice <laughs> oh. on how to begin to do this? Oh, you're a very different person from me, whoever you are. I, I'm intensely self-reflective. I've got this kind of great library of self-help books and all these different ways and grids and things. I've got a new one on the go all the time, some new way of understanding myself. So we are a bit different from ourselves, from each other. And, and, and for me, I need to look outside of myself a bit more and just kind of get on with life sometimes. I do think, though, that self-reflection is a worthwhile thing. And sometimes, if, if you're not the sort of person who's very good at it, one way to do it is just to ask other people and to find ways of uh, asking other people what, what, um, what I'm like. Um, you know, a question like, what, if you've got a close friend, you know, what, a, what do you think are my, two, my, my top two strengths that you see in me? And, you know, if, if you could say to me, what two things do you think I could work on where I could really, you know, show an improvement? Ask a, ask a friend that kind of question. I've done that from time to time, and it's quite interesting, quite illuminating. And for those of us who are less reflective, who, who, who have a small backstage, there's this kind of way of understanding ourselves, and the front stage and backstage, and some of us have vast front stages where we're with people and we're on display, and not much of a backstage. Some of us don't like that so much, and we have a big backstage, which is very private, where we do all this ruminating. If you've got a small backstage, try and use the front stage with all the people you know, to help you and get some feedback on it and just get some suggestions as to what you could think about. Um, we all know people suffering with depression. What is helpful to do or say in order to try and help that person? There's a very wise pastor, Steve Midgley, who's vicar of the church, whose parish um, my church building lies in. and uh, He's someone I re- reflect a lot. And what he always teaches his curates is a, is a very good phrase, very good saying, it's kind of a little proverb really walk towards the pain three words, walk towards the pain I have it as a little reminder on my phone so it comes up once a month and it flashes up I find that very helpful the reason is that we tend to walk away from it, we tend to avoid people because we anticipate an awkward conversation we think we're not going to know what to say. Um, or we think they're going to be some kind of burden to us and that some of their issue is going to transfer to us. And actually, in the third of those things, we're kind of right. Because we are called to draw near to people who are struggling and to bear their burdens with them. In terms of a conversation, what that looks like is asking someone how they're doing listening really carefully and attentively, leaving some spaces if they need it so that then they can say a bit more, and then just saying what I said at some point yesterday, which is just something like this. Sounds like you're having a really hard time and I'm really sorry. Not sorry because it's your fault, just just because you're sorry. Just expressing compassion and empathy. And that does a huge amount. That is bearing a bit of their burden for them. And you will feel it. And this is one of the emotional dynamics of of, of helping someone. You feel that burden. And because you feel that burden, you will be tempted then to try to solve the problem 
so that you can get the monkey off your back. Or you'll be tempted to close down the conversation and move on because, again, you want to put the burden back on their shoulders because none of us likes burdens. But it seems to me the Christian and compassionate thing to do, as I've said, is to listen to them and just to say those things and then to go on listening and to be in solidarity with them and then just to keep contact. And that's what I'd commend to you. And I think that can be tremendously helpful. There can be times to say, yes, I've had this issue too, and yes, I had a friend, and they had a homeopathic remedy, and he got rid of it. And actually, I wouldn't say that. It's not, not helpful. Um, on, you know, my mum once felt low and you know, went to the seaside for the day and got better. Probably not that one either, actually. Um, maybe there's some little bits of advice we can, we can give, but most of it is not advice. It's just bearing the burden for them. And it is hugely helpful. Um, slightly different thing uh, how do we distinguish between God's calling to do something different or go somewhere different and our own itchy feet um, more broadly how do we identify God's calling or leading in our life, lives yeah. yeah good question and appreciate both halves of it well we experience God's uh, calling and leading in our lives um, through a variety of things part of it is what um, other people think of us and say to us. So if you apply to do medicine, you get turned down. You're not going to be a doctor. Or I suppose you could reapply, but the other person's decision and evaluation of you will mean that you can't be. Or if you fail your final exams at medical school, you're not going to be a doctor. I mean, that's putting it pretty starkly. But other people's evaluation of us is very, very important. Sometimes that can be people who are relative strangers, but are in a, a job interview or, or something like that. Sometimes it can be people who know us well. And uh, there I say our parents can be a pretty good source of uh, help on that. We don't always want to consult our parents because we want to be independent of them, but actually they can be pretty helpful. But their advice shouldn't be followed to the letter because they're sinners, they have their own axes to grind and their own blind spots. So there's other people. Then there's kind of who I am as a person, what gets me passionate and what I can do. So, um, I don't know, for me to develop a passion... um, for being a brain surgeon might be very interesting, but I've never had very good eye-hand coordination, and I don't think I would ever have got anywhere with that, which wouldn't have been appropriate. Um, And you can multiply that. So there is something about us, the way we're wired, who we are as people, that I think is is very important. And you you kind of, it's about becoming the sorts of person God has wanted you to professionally, and in terms of serving others and serving him with those things. That's that's a big part of calling, uh, and is very significant. And then there are the specific opportunities that come along. I mean, you, you, you may want to um, uh, be someone who's a computer software developer in a certain part of that field and to work in a certain place. But if a job comes up somewhere else and there's no job where you want to live and the job is a slightly different kind of job, you're probably going to have to take that job because you've got to earn a living one way or the other. And there's a certain pragmatic thing of saying, yeah, I've got to earn a living. I'm responsible to earn my own living. I'm not just doing this for fun. It's my God-given responsibility to work, to have money, to pay for what I need and to be able to support others as well. And that, I think, is important. So, um, and in terms of the process of discerning a calling, we, we pray about it and we seek to see how we can use what God has made us, the opportunities we've got, the openings that there are, to, to express who we are and to serve other people and to serve God. And if possible, to find the ways that have the most utility to them, to relieve other people's suffering uh, and to uh, have ways of um, proclaiming the gospel.
if, if there's a choice between something that enables you to do one of those two things and not, then I'll go for those things if possible. In terms of changing jobs, in terms of moving around, if we have some discretion, that, that's a kind of interesting one. Sometimes people don't have much discretion. You just have to keep going with it, or you just have to move somewhere else because that's the only job. And at that point, you just have to go with the flow and be pragmatic. Generally speaking, there is a principle in Scripture about not changing things unless there's a good reason, on the one hand. So that's the kind of 1 Corinthians 7 principle. If you're in a certain calling, stick to it unless there's a good reason to move out of it. And if you're the sort of person that finds it hard to stick at things and tends to get impatient um, rather too quickly and finds it hard to be in something for the long haul, then you're going against the wisdom of Proverbs and the the general pattern of Scripture, which is to stick at something and see the rewards come in the long term. But, and this is where this isn't just black and white, there's another principle in Scripture, which is that God often calls people to do new things for him. And you can see this in the life of Abraham, the great exemplar of faith. And Abraham had to exercise faith because God was calling him to this huge journey into this new place where this amazing thing was supposed to be happening. And he had to move out of his comfort zone. And for the sort of person that's a bit conservative, never really moved away from home very much, doesn't like new things, God can surprise us. And maybe he wants us to move 10 miles or 100 miles or to move to a new area of work, to something a bit more challenging. And I suspect that because God is the wise shepherd, the Lord Jesus is the wise shepherd of our lives, he knows who we are, and the pressure he will be putting on us through the Holy Spirit is if we're more conservative, it will be to push ourselves out of our comfort zones a bit. And if we've got itchy feet and tend not to stick at things, the pressure from the Holy Spirit will be to stick at it. And only you know who you are. Uh, it says, thank you, Julian, for your honesty and addressing real issues in our lives in a biblical way. Thank you for your words about work. Could you briefly talk about employed work and where it should come in our list of, of priorities alongside family, church, friends, rest, etc.? <coughs> in terms of how we spend our lives, employed work is non-negotiable non-optional. We've got to do it. So in one sense, it's a very big priority. Um, Now, the danger is that it starts to overspill its boundaries and take over parts of life that are also priorities. So I I think it's a mistake to hierarchicalise things too much and to say that family should be more important than work in some blanket way. Well, if... You know, that, that... that, that can't be right. I mean, part of the reason for going to work is to provide for family. Um, and it wouldn't be right to spend all day, every day, at least I don't think, um, with my family. I, I need to be in my working life. I need to be expressing my calling and serving the general community in that way. The danger is, though, for the extra hour or the extra two hours or the extra three hours at work at the expense of the family. And that's where the clash is. And that's where so many people make poor choices. Um, Equally, there's a certain sort of person in the workplace uh, who's always having time off work because of their children's needs, isn't making alternative provision for them, and is cutting corners and gets known for that. Think of one Christian I've heard of via a route through a colleague and who has a poor reputation with her colleagues precisely because of that. The site is snivel and it seems to be down tools and she's in a highly uh, professional environment and that isn't a good witness. Now, I can't judge whether she's, she's getting that right or not, but it can go the other way too. So I would want to see um, 
the whole of life as having a number of different responsibilities, all of which are our top priority for that moment. Um, and then we need to work out where the boundaries lie and work out whether um, family is encroaching too much on work or work on family, or the combination of work and family encroaching too much on, say, church, which requires um, volunteer input and people working in youth work and uh, leading house groups and other kinds of things, as well as arriving early to open up the building on a Sunday morning or whatever. And what we should be looking for is a, a balanced life in which the kind of pie chart is cut up well with some flexibility there, but in which every part is done for the Lord. And in working out those priorities, we need to pray over them and search our hearts and talk it through with other people. Okay. Uh, what is your opinion on biblical fasting? On fasting? Um, I see fasting as a biblical norm. I don't think the way Jesus describes it on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount it's seen as optional. Uh, he says, when you fast. And I think he is imagining a pattern or practice of fasting. Well, he doesn't say precisely what that should be, but I do think it is, um, it is, it is something that the New Testament expects. I think the New Testament sees it in slightly different terms from the Old Testament, where it was very much an expression of repentance of sin. I think in the New Testament, there's a sense of, uh, of rejoicing in Christ and then focusing on Christ and what he's brought in a special way. What, what my friend and colleague did was fasting for a week. It was very extraordinary. I'd never fasted for a week. I managed a weekend once at university, and then I went in to uh, the hall canteen and ate this vast cooked breakfast on the Monday morning and felt so ill. I almost couldn't go to work. So I learned a lesson from that. Um, but I think fasting has its place. I think um, missing meals in order to focus on God in prayer is a really good thing to do. And I think you can pray in a focused way uh, and you can create extra time to do it. I think it's a really good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, I greatly appreciate I'm sorry. I greatly appreciated your comments on the professions and wealth creation. As a Christian in the professional world, it is something that motivates me. Hmm. But you're the first minister I've heard say that. Why do you think such thinking has been largely absent from the church's teaching? And how pra practically do we change that? It's a bit of a bee in my bonnet. Um, you probably could probably tell because the, the kind of edge and the voice crept in. Why has it been, why is it not taught on? I think two reasons. Um, one is a very good biblical reason, which is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And wealth creation is a dodgy business, or at least a risky business, because of that. You know, those who uh, desire to get rich uh, fall into all kinds of um, uh, difficult desires and temptations and traps and snares. Uh, this is all from 1 Timothy. I've just preached on all this. This is why the forefront of my mind. And so I think properly we've been cautious about it for that reason. I think I'm on fairly secure ground in saying that. And anyone involved in an industry where there is the potential to make money uh, needs to be really, really aware of that. And I, I do try to warn people about that as well as talking up wealth creation. I'll be a bit more provocative now. And this is, if you like, this is not scripture speaking so much as my observation. Um, I think in British culture there is a general aversion to wealth creation. We're good at invention but not exploiting inventions. And I think that large sections of the church have built into um, 
that kind of quasi-socialist view of the way the economy works, in which entrepreneurship and private capital, people taking risks and getting rewards, are not seen as anything but bad. I think since the Second World War, we've been very statist, very corporatist. We've assumed that there should be this benign big government that does everything, including industry and everything else, and the government will know best. And I, I just think large sections of the church have been deeply affected by that and are therefore suspicious of uh, entrepreneurship and wealth creation for that reason. Um, and it may be that people working in the private sector feel very much that way, but people outside of it, uh, and people outside of it are therefore made to feel as though there was something inherently dodgy about what they were doing if they're trying to make money in something. And I, I think that's a mentality we need to get out of. Uh, very different in North America. Right? In America, it's, it's the opposite. And you need to be a bit careful about kind of blessing baptizing rampant capitalism. But that is not a problem in this country, and it's the other way around. And therefore, an awful lot of um, God-given instincts that can go the wrong way, but can also go the right way, get disapproved of and looked down on, and and we miss out as a result. Um, One of my very closest friends is is in wealth creation. He's a wonderful guy. Um, he He set up companies in Moldova and Romania, employing large numbers of people in both countries. And he did it partly just to create wealth in poor countries. He, he, his, his, his IT company became the biggest contributor in tax terms to the Moldovan exchequer. Um, he, he did it for, uh, for Christian reasons, but he did it as wealth creation. He's got a big project on at the moment. He's hoping to make some money out of it. He, he wants to make money out of it because he will, he'd like to be able to retire, give himself to Christian work, and to have made enough money to invest in Christian projects as well as creating jobs and wealth you know, for the people involved in, in his little scheme. Um, he's invested a lot of his own money in it, and I hope he gets a really whacking reward, because he, he stands to lose it all. And I think if you've made that kind of um, risk of your own money, then it, it's right that you should get the reward from it. Uh, but then you have to use that, that money wisely. So that's a little bit rambling, but that's how I would start to put together an answer to that. It would be interesting if anyone you know, wants to come back on, at me on that, because that's more polemical and uh, responding to a situation, it's not so much biblical teaching, it's just my kind of set of rather prejudiced observations. Um, you might struggle to answer this one. Who would win in a fight between Samson and King David? <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, very good. Depends, uh, depends whether he's been to the barbers or not, doesn't it? <laughs> Actually, I, I mean, Samson was a kind of close quarters guy, wasn't he? Whereas, whereas David had the kind of field artillery, so I suspect David would win that one. Uh, two questions relating to sluggardliness. Uh, how would you advise avoiding sluggardliness in quiet time? And what have you found most helpful in your own quiet time? Some of us are creatures of routine and habits work really well for us. And that's what I'm like. So for me, getting patterns is really useful. And um, my patterns are fairly rigid and I do the same sort of thing each day. That works really well for me. And if you're a creature of habit, I suspect that will work for you. So you haven't got to kind of reinvent how you do a quiet time every day. You've got a pattern that's comfortable for you. Some people are not creatures of habit, though. And it's enough of a habit for you 
enough an effort for you just to have a quiet time every day, let alone have a pattern to it. And what you need to sit in a more project kind of a way. So you'll, you'll do a quiet time in a certain way for a month or two, and then you'll change it. And you'll have the freshness to look forward to, because you're the sort of person that welcomes change. Work with your personality type. Understand yourself, and do what works for you in that. The other thing about um, overcoming sluggardliness with quiet times is, I think, to try to take a kind of cost-benefit analysis to it. Is that the right phrase? Just to keep saying to myself, it really is worth it. Even if I don't feel like it, it really is worth it to do it and to overcome the sluggardliness with some sort of slogan like that. Okay. Uh, just on that subject, there's a little booklet which are free. Um, you don't have to pay for them, they're free. It's called Open Up the Bible, uh, which has got some things that will uh, help you think about uh, daily Bible reading. Uh, another question then on uh, sluggardiness. What advice would you give when other people's sluggardiness affects you, both in your employed work but also in home and church life? Mm, and, uh, yeah, good, good question, because we are affected by other people. It was a section I didn't include last night on, in the se- section on uh, in the, the seminar on words, which was about rebuke, and maybe it's a chance to bring some of that in. There's quite a big theme in Proverbs about the value of correcting others. Proverbs, the whole thing is about instruction and correction. Um, and it seems to me that in the workplace, we almost have a professional responsibility to um, to challenge sluggardliness and its different manifestations, especially if it affects us one way or the other. Um, Now, the way to do that is by what these days is called assertiveness, which is in the middle. Assertiveness is very different from aggression, which is at one end of a spectrum, one pole, and passivity on the other. In this kind of modern thing that's being developed, which I think is very helpful, assertiveness is in the middle. And it means respecting the other person, trying to dignify them, finding ways of bringing things up appropriately, and if it's the workplace, professionally, to challenge areas of sluggardliness that affect us. And I think, I think we have a responsibility to do that as Christians. I think in most workplaces that would be recognised as a professional responsibility too. Certainly if you're managing people, it is. Uh, it's not always easy. And some people erect uh, kind of uh, carpets of eggshells around them that can make it very difficult. They, they up the emotional states very quickly and become defensive or even tearful. We have to watch that. Um, but I'd encourage you to find the right words, the right place, the right manner uh, to do it. And equally in areas of family or other kinds of relationship. I, I think most of us are not very good at this, and we tend to think rebuke is like kind of hitting someone over the head with a, with a mallet. But actually doing it in a gentle way is one of the kindest things you can do to someone. One of the most helpful things that's happened to me this year was when I was quite rude to... Um, to someone else who, who works for me and the next day she sent me an email and just said I think you were very rude yesterday and I'd been feeling all kind of high handed about it but actually I realised she was right and I just went and apologised and it made me think quite a bit about what lay behind the fact that there had been this outburst of rudeness and if she hadn't had the guts to do that the love to do that I, I probably would have gone on thinking that I was in the right and she was in the wrong but her doing that helped me to see it uh, and to see that actually she was in the right and I was in the wrong I shouldn't have have had that outburst of of ill temper and rudeness. Um, Not an easy thing to do, but something for us to work on and to recognise as a responsibility, again, not just of law, but of love. Um, 
another one about the sluggard. Uh, again, you mentioned in, one, in your last sermon there about the different areas that might affect, and one was singing. Uh, when you're at church and don't feel like having to sing, how do you change that or get into that mindset? One of the most famous psalms and best loved is Psalm 103, um, which starts, Praise the Lord, O my soul, let all my inmost being praise his holy name. We tend to skate over what is actually happening there. It doesn't begin with praise, because that's not praise. It's a command to praise. But it's a self-addressed command to praise. It's what's called these days self-talk. So David's in this position where he needs to tell himself to praise God, to rouse himself to prayer. That's very, very interesting. Most people just don't notice that about Psalm 103. We get into the glories that come later, but that is what is going on, and that is what we need to do, to rouse ourselves to prayer. This, this affects me. It affects me for Sunday evenings. It's not so much for Sunday mornings for some reason, but the Sunday evening service, and quite often by sort of 4.30, I'm thinking, oh, it'll be nice to stay with the family, and you know, I'm quite tired, and I... You know, we had a good service this morning. Do I really need another? And oh, I don't know. And, and then I think, oh, well, actually, I'm leading the service, so I've got to be there. <laughs> but if that happens to me, how much more does it have, happen to people who have a bit more discretion about it? I mean, I, I'm actually employed to be there, so if I haven't got a good excuse, like being really ill or something, I've got to be there. I mean, it's my job. Um, it doesn't mean to say I, I, I praise from the heart, but I actually have to be in the building. But I don't just want to be in the building. And what I, I say to myself, often as I'm cycling in, is, is something like this. This is my own little kind of pep talk. There is nothing more important than praising the God who made the universe and is my saviour. There is something inherently worthwhile about praise. It is its own justification. It needs no other justification. It is just a, an inherently good thing to do. And most of the week, I can't focus on God and praise him because I have other responsibilities. It can be the background thing that's going on around, you know, kind of in and and around in my heart. But, you know, I'm focusing on preparing a sermon or I'm focusing on counselling someone or leading a meeting or whatever. And the same is true for you and your working in in home and family lives. So I don't actually get very long in the week when I can really give myself 100% to it. And actually, how long is that? Well, it's about an hour and a half, depending on how long the preacher preaches for. And as that's me, it can be quite a long time in the mornings. And again, about an hour and a half in the evening. How much of that is that of the week? And how much of that is actually praise? I mean, the singing isn't actually last that much of the service. Gosh, it's, it's, this is a really in, important, inherently worthwhile thing to do. Am I really saying I've got anything better to do for this hour and a half? Now, is that about a 12-minute bike journey? Almost. Well, at least it's part of it. And generally I find that um, by the time I'm, I don't know, crossing a set of traffic lights, I've got myself into the state, and I'm really quite excited about being in church and singing. But I've had to give myself the pep talk based on those kind of principles. A um, couple of related things about gossip. What is gossip and what isn't gossip? And then, so this is a cultural one, Northern Ireland people uh, love a bit of banter, uh, which... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what has Proverbs got to say about joking? Right. Well, gossip. Um, how can we define gossip? Gossip is the unnecessary sharing of 
information about someone else that puts them in a poor light. I mean, it can be accurate, but sharing it is gratuitous. It's not necessary. I think that's how I would describe it. There's a form of gossip, though, which shares information which is a half-truth, something which has not been checked out, something which um, there could be a better explanation for it, but we take the more negative side, so it kind of gets worse. At it, what I'm saying is, at its best, it's the sharing of true information that doesn't have to be shared. At its worst, it's the sharing of exaggerating or even untrue information, which is obviously far worse, because you're, what you're passing on is an untruth. You're bearing false witness. Uh, so that's how I think I would define gossip. And as soon as you say it like that, you, you realise how, how wrong it is. Um, banter. Oh, banter's a great thing. I, you know, oh, great. Don't, don't, don't suppress yourselves. Um, <laughs> and and te- you know, teasing people in a, in a nice way is, is, is cool too. And it, you know, it can be a, a cultural thing. Different people are affected by it in different ways. There's a kind of teasing that crosses a line into insensitivity or even unconscious cruelty, you've got to be aware of the, the other person and sensitive to that. And sometimes you can tell from an expression or a slight withdrawal that it's gone a bit too far for someone. Um, but uh, a kind of you know, robust um, uh, banter and mucking around, yeah, I, I, I don't think Proverbs would, um, would, would see that as uh, anything, uh, anything inappropriate. It's, it's about the way that um, human speech is used to build human relationships and human community. If that's all that we have, I think there's a deficiency there. Um, and uh, I, I think particularly for guys, maybe, we're, we're not good at sharing. And sometimes we just take refuge in, in the banter. And that's all the relationship is. And I think that's a pity. Um, in some cultures, there's a retreat just into small talk. We're, we're about to appoint a new assistant pastor. We have appointed him. He's arriving soon. He's from Northern Ireland. Maybe some of you know him. He's a guy called Steve Old. Um, and one of the things that attracted me about Steve, among many things, is that he's quite direct in spiritual terms. And I said this to the church recently in a sermon I was preaching on, I think, 1 Timothy 4, about the responsibility of the minister to challenge and to correct and to rebuke. And I said, you need to be braced for this, because he's not this kind of guy who's just wanted to talk about the weather and sport. You know, his references have said he'd be talking, he'll, he'll give you a bit of small talk because he's not a machine, but then he'd be asking you questions about your spiritual life. And I said, and he's from Northern Ireland. He's not this kind of inhibited Englishman like me who kind of beats around the bush. <laughs> you know, he's going to be after you, and you need to realize it's his job to do so. That's what I said to them. So it's, well, they're all looking forward to that now. Um, I suppose we're, we're coming close yes. to the end now. I um, just want to go back to couple of your answers towards the beginning That's you fine. talked about seeing um things in light of the grand narrative hmm. of scripture um i suppose when you come to think of an old testament um passage it's not just so straightforward as it might be for us reading about jesus in the gospels yep. or in the epistles um what would you say about interpreting and i have a verse here uh, luke twenty four twenty seven. Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, I mean, the whole Old Testament points towards Jesus and the work of redemption in the church and final redemption. So we have to see it always pointing um, uh, one way or another to him. The ways that it does that are quite 
um, disparate. Uh, much of it is by what's called typology. So there'll be something which in the Old Testament is like a kind of two-dimensional thing in the New Testament is the full thing. Um, so the sacrifices and the temple and the people and the land and a whole set of things, they're all like two-dimensional pictures of something that is three-dimensional in Christ and in the church and in the new creation, and that's one way of doing it. Uh, another way, I think, is just to see... Um, uh, patterns in the Old Testament of human failure pointing towards something better in Christ. So that, I think, is what's going on with Solomon. You know, the, greatest, the wisest man who ever lived is still a failure and points towards Jesus is not a failure and towards the fact that we as failures can find redemption in Christ. Uh, the New Testament encourages us, I think, to see a set of bad examples in the Old Testament which are written for our instruction. Um, and in the narrative, there are people who fail and we learn from that what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 about the wilderness experience. And he basically says they were grumbling. They were um, engaging in revelry and idolatry in the the wilderness. These things were written as examples for us so that we wouldn't do the same. We're New Testament Christians. We've got the fullness of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. We look at those examples and we work with the Holy Spirit to make sure we don't repeat them. So in that respect, seeing bad examples is is very real. And then the New Testament also sees... um, good examples in the Old Testament, examples of faith. And uh, you can see that in Paul's reading of Abraham in Galatians and Romans. You can see it in uh, the wonderful passage in um, Hebrews chapter 11. A whole set of examples of people who didn't trust themselves but trusted God and they're there for us to follow. And they point forward as well to Christ and to trusting in him. So it's, it's not a simple thing, just like kind of typology. It's, it's a multifaceted thing. Um, and it's very rich, and it instructs us wonderfully. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry if your question has not uh, been answered. Um, I don't know if Julian will be happy to answer, maybe in a one-to-one uh, way. Uh, we're going to have lunch in just just over 15 minutes. But before that, I just want to say a few thank yous to people who have been involved in the weekend. Um, for first, can I thank Julian uh, and Debbie um, for... <laughs> Just thank you for your time with us. Uh, and uh, as you said, you've had conversations with different people. And from, from those I've talked to, they've, they've been telling me how they have appreciated uh, your, your preaching to us. So thank you. Uh, and we hope you will continue to be faithful to your calling over in Cambridge. Uh, as well as that, we'd like to thank uh, two guys who, without them, it probably wouldn't be possible to have amplification and all the things that are in the background that, are, that go unnoticed a lot of the time. But... Um, it wouldn't happen without them. And Dave and Jonathan Kennedy there at the back on the audio visual. <laughs> and then Sarah and Catherine, uh, who you've all saw to pay, I hope, by now. <laughs> um, they have done the administration uh, things along with, I think, Joanne as well. So just a thanks to them and to... Uh, I mean, there's other people have helped in lots of different ways, thanks to Rebecca, and for others who have been up at the front helping with Bible readings, uh, helping with tea and coffee, thank you, and uh, the bookstall and um, Stuart uh, for locking up and opening up, and just um, it takes different people doing different things to make the castle uh, run smoothly. And then again, just thanks thanks everyone for being here, uh, making this what it is. And again, um, 
you know, six months down the line, we'll be here again uh, with uh, John Samuel uh, from uh, London preaching on Ephesians. And then a year from now, um, guy Johnny Jukes will be preaching on 1 Samuel. Uh, so come back and bring your friends uh, or people from your church that you know and join with us then. Uh, again, if your room has not been cleared yet, um, we've got 15 minutes now uh, to clear that. And otherwise, uh, you can just enjoy talking. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, a final announcement. Um, you've, you've seen our website, uh, which was new a few years ago, but the way web things work, uh, new a few years ago is not new anymore. So uh, we are looking to develop and update that and redesign that. If you are someone who is into web design or knows a lot about that, please come and speak and would be willing to help uh, or give advice. <laughs> please come and uh, speak to myself or to Mark um, and uh, we'd be happy to hear from you um, uh, to help us out uh, in that. And I think that's everything. Uh, I'll maybe pray uh, now and give thanks for the food that we'll be about to receive and then um, you're free.